0: welcome to joiners the podcast with tim and danny where we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters very good very chipper today danny yes
1: sir gotta bring the energy yeah i feel you um have you are you caught up on the bear season two we watched the whole thing really i'm not right through it halfway through i was reluctant to start it because we don't really watch when i do watch tv it's like before bed where the Mm. we're people who have a bet oh um, you didn't want to get the heart rate up you're the bedroom television yeah and it's not a show you want to watch before bed but yeah. last night we binged like five episodes nice how are you feeling about the season thus far it's cr- it's so good yeah. it really is it's so enjoyable and it's fun to see the cameos and see people from the industry guests of the pod for sure yeah i just watched the uh the episode with uh where sydney goes throughout the city and Hits up all the spots, and Rob levitt has got a nice scene in there. He does good. Donnie Medea showing. Yep, yep. Uh, Posey quickly in that episode. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's really good. We we got a chance to work on. Uh, we did some wardrobe for season two, which was fun, and then we did the um, we did
0: uh, the wrap gifts for the casting crew. That we, was a funny story. What? Just all the back <laughs> and forth on that. <laughs> well, us giving, not. A, I mean, I'm not involved, but Tim giving them to Eric, and then like. oh well those were the hats we made but but for the wrap gifts
1: we made oh yeah sorry uh, sorry, we did blankets and duffel bags for them we came with like some really cool i thought we came with some really cool designs and we went ended up doing something pretty minimal but still fun to work with them yeah so last night we watched like five episodes and i'm like all right it's like midnight we got to go to bed and uh i get in bed and i was still like a little fired up because we stopped watching in the middle of that christmas episode Mm. and uh you know got the Got the heart rate yeah, up. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, so I get into bed and I, I like grab my Kindle and I, I start reading. I'm reading a uh, Dharma Bums again. It's a favorite of mine. <laughs> and, uh, and Shannon goes, "Hey, uh, no more screen time." <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm like, Shannon's the screen time police. I'm like, I'm reading a book in my own bed. How are you gonna tell me? <laughs> yeah, but that Shannon's
0: I have... in control.
1: I was, I was like, I'm. 37 years old <laughs> if i want to read we've... epic anyway really really a strange thing oh, that's there. too good um well anyway speaking of the bear yeah this week the
0: most recent episode of it that you finished oh was the sydney episode, correct right? uh, no
1: i think there's one between those two oh, but anyway right. um one of the places that sid visits is owned by this week's guest yes it we... is
0: pizza lobo <laughs> and this week's guest is Matt Eisler. That's right, CEO of Heisler Hospitality. And you know is... what? A uh, quick update: Tim and I are changing the name of this pod to Shapirni. That's right. We we liked what Matt
1: and Kevin did with Heisler, so we're we're going to follow in the same vein. Yeah. So uh, welcome back to the uh, Shapirni podcast. That's right. I think that's got legs. It's a it's fun to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, this is a great conversation. We we covered. Matt's got long history with uh hockey that we recap at the beginning and then Mm -hmm. we get into his career and really just kind of learning as he went and um kind of building this empire yeah along the way
0: very impressive guy yeah impressive empire
1: yeah and a lot of good stories to boot yeah this is a fun one so without further ado please enjoy our conversation with matt eisler
0: all right so you grew up on the
1: east coast no wait hold on i wanted to say i so <laughs> back on the topic of highwood that i went to lake forest college so oh, highwood yeah. was like if you wanted to go, you can't go to a bar in lake forest you go to the lantern or whatever but in highwood we'd go wait to, like, why can't you go to a bar in lake forest Because there's nothing oh, there right. really Fair enough. um right downtown bars yeah there, there's a fire station themed there, there's thing. not
2: much in terms of bars in lake forest um you know i think it would be a tough sell to the mayor yeah uh, yeah Highwood I was told the other day at one point had like the highest number of liquor license per capita, even Whoa, oh, really? relative to Chicago yeah huh.
1: we went yeah Highwood's tiny though, and you have does that include Fort Sheridan too? uh there's not much in Fort Sheridan, yeah, but we we would go to like Teddy O'Brien's was a spot, Gabe's wooden nickel, and I think that's kind of it. it was those three, my college was like fourteen hundred kids, and then like the last year, so the the town hates the college. It seems, I mean, cause we were cause it's right on Sheridan road, the school. And, um, I was on the tennis team and the, t- the tennis team rented a house and the city was always complaining about parties at the house. And then one time the Dean of students called us in the office and he's like, he's like, you can't have a kegger. I'm like, what do you mean? Like we rent, like we don't live on campus. What do you mean? And he's like, you can't have a kegger. And I need you to write an essay about being, uh, a resident in an upscale town. So, I went, so so I went to the dean of faculty. I'm like Todd Stein wants me to write an essay about living in a wealthy town and she's like you don't have to do that. And that was the end of that. It's such a bizarre thing. But there's always so much friction with the town. Do you, do you experience that at all? Uh or are you far enough uh, away I from mean, campus?
2: No, it's I think it's uh, different issues like for example, um don't cut down a tree even in your yard without Wow.
1: Well, there's the famous story about Mr. T. Yeah. you know that?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I do now. Wait, what's but... the Mr. T story? <laughs> so
1: Mr. T moved to Lake Forest and cut down like every single tree on his property and the town went nuts. And I think he got kicked out of Lake Forest, didn't yeah,
2: he? Yeah, I don't know it exactly. It's not far from my house, but essentially he wasn't granted permission to do something he wanted. And right? it was on his own property? It was his mm-hmm. own property. And you know, a large piece of property. Um, and so he just said, F you, and he brought, brought in a crew and just knocked it to the ground. I'm talking like 10 acres <laughs> off, <laughs> off, like, the main sh- drag. Um, and so anyhow, apparently the city has like Mr. T laws now. And it's this oh really stringent like landscaping, you're reservation. Like, you're a
1: victim of the Mr. T law. Do they get yeah, the A yeah. team
0: to enforce that? <laughs> yeah, they
1: bring a man in, <laughs> in the in they
0: the sure. van. <laughs> um all right, but you grew up on the East Coast, right?
2: I did, yeah. And uh you were a big hockey player. I was. Um trying to think how to make this short and sweet. But, uh <laughs> Yeah, no, I was born in New York, grew up in New Jersey, a bridge and tunnel crowd. Both my folks commuted to Manhattan daily. Um, Hockey was not a big thing at all, Uh, yet I was, like, drawn to it just watching TV. We had uh, Madison Square Garden, and then we also got Bruins games, and so I'd, like, sit in my basement uh, with, like, a rubber ball pretending to be goalie, you know. Um, but yeah, somehow by like 10 years old, I convinced my dad, uh, to let me join a hockey team. There was one other kid in my school that did it. It was like, uh, you know, 30, 40 minute drive and like terrible hours of the day. Yeah. Like super early, right? Yeah. Especially when you're a little kid, it's like 6 AM Sunday morning, you know, where was the rink? It was in New York. So even though I was living in Jersey, yeah. (laughs) So, um, but anyhow, did it? Got into it? Really loved it. Um, you know, ironically, wasn't great at it for a while. Um, but uh, when I was like fifteen, maybe so. I started when I was ten or eleven. When yeah. I was fifteen, um, I don't know. I grew a little bit, or something just kind of clicked. I mean. My dad always thought I was great, but, you know, <laughs> uh, realistically, looking back, you know, pretty pretty average. Um, but, yeah, when I was 15, I kind of went from, you know, being, uh, you go to an open tryout every year, and uh, I'd be, like, the seventh or eighth guy. So they'd have, like, a double A team, an A team, you know. But, uh, yeah, came in whatever year it was uh, maybe it was like my freshman year in high school and uh, you know made the first team and had a really great year and so I was playing it's a travel team it's not like a school uh, affiliated thing but all these kids were super serious and had been like playing together as a group for years since they were young like they'd moved to organizations but keep together as a Mm -hmm. team right so you know a big chunk of the games we'd play were against uh prep school jv teams because all of them were on this track if you're growing up in the east coast that's like the competitive hockey um whereas like minnesota is just you know like texas high school football it's crazy but anyhow so i i uh I started you know kind of hanging with these guys that were really serious like olympic developmental stuff and you know blah 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 but uh i had kind of a kind of a weird time personally 15 right before my 16th birthday my mom passed Mm -hmm. so you know i'm kind of like you know love hockey but kind of like took a little break uh i had been going to a private school where they at least had a hockey team but I moved back to public school to, you know, hang out with my friends and not go to class and get in trouble. So uh, mm-hmm. my dad took me to visit my friends at a, one of these prep schools with the hockey team. And it was, uh, it was right at the end of the first semester. And basically it, w- it was like an um, uh, intervention, right? So he took, they took me up there. I had a couple friends up there, my dad, the like, head of the school. And they are like, listen... Uh, if you come up here, or stay here, rather, right now, we'll give you grades for first semester. So, you know, I'm 16, this stuff's pretty impactful for, sorry, for uh, for college. So I'm like, you know, all right, I did it. And uh, so I ended up in prep school in Connecticut, played hockey for three years there. Again, like two years were very marginal. My senior year, played really well, had had a whole bunch of offers to play hockey at different places um
0: i chose notre dame you know how did so <clears throat> so what was the school in connecticut that you were at
2: so it was called or is called the canterbury school okay um kind Cha- of chaucer oh, <laughs> canterbury yeah, tales Canterbury Tales. Yeah, yeah. absolutely but uh <laughs> you know looking back it was it was amazing for me i don't think i would ever send my kids to a place like that per se but how come um because i'm greedy and want to hang out with my kids <laughs> yeah. as much as possible yeah. um but no listen it was great for me uh given you know my circumstances i'm an only child so it was like you know really cool to just uh you know go from being a little lonely at home to like living in a dorm with you know of yeah what was dorm life like at
1: 16 i couldn't imagine
2: yeah i mean you know a lot like it was at notre dame freshman year, (laughs) candidly uh but no you know i had been going to camps and stuff and was kind of comfortable with it and like Mm -hmm. i said i had a couple friends that i had played with the prior year so it was i don't really remember having a tough time with that at all
0: yeah and then how did you choose notre dame
2: um, well, like I said, I was kind of, uh, a late bloomer in terms of what was going on. So my senior year, <clears throat> a couple of my friends already had like committed to schools and I was still like, um, up in the air, yeah. you know, but, uh, <clears throat> I had a great second half of the season and we won our new England championship, uh, you know, tournament. Yeah. And uh, it was one of those things where, for me, it was kind of like out of a movie, you know, um, <laughs> in that, you know, I walked out of the locker room after our championship game, and the Notre Dame coach was there, and <laughs> the Princeton coach was there, and yeah. so on and so forth. You know, after wanting this badly for years, and yeah. really kind of like not, not quite getting that attention, like the very last game of your Wow year cut. So, you know, what was, position did you play? I was a goalie. Okay. So goalies are weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I deliver on that. <laughs> um, all right. So you go to Notre Dame, go to Notre Dame, uh, you know, have a tough time freshman year for a couple reasons. Our team was terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, there was only like two, uh, two other, uh, kids, freshman on the hockey team so what there wasn't this like big group um, but you know what uh, I after like a couple of games I uh, became the starting goalie and I had a really good year and that kind of made everything all right I think you know I found a girlfriend in the spring and um, you know won a couple awards and it was kind of enough you know to get me excited about things and come (laughs) back. Whereas, you know, I remember early in my freshman year talking to my dad and being like, dude, this is not for me. And he was, and I remember the the conversation specifically. He was like, you can come home and pump gas. Like, and I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, what else are you going to do? And I was like, all right, fair enough, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, there's some... uh, Yeah, I'd take uh, Notre Dame, I guess. (laughs) That's a pretty (laughs) obvious decision right there. Yeah, Um, I mean, that that would just be ignorant, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty uh, excellent career at Notre Dame and then even beyond.
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, it gets better and better every year, uh, you know, when I tell the stories. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I had a, you know, college was kind of the best uh, for me, you know, tons of great friends and you know we never won any championships or anything uh in my time there but you know i i played i started all four years and have uh you know i still in my office at home have like my three mvp trophies yeah it's very cool this and that and uh you know still amongst uh, the greatest sources of pride i have and you know again relationships i still kind of keep in touch with even my coach is still there after all these years so yeah it was cool and then you know I uh did you know you wanted to go pro while you were like at what point did
0: you make that decision or figure that out
2: I think like most every kid even playing hockey wants to go pro and it's just a matter of when you get that tap on the shoulder where it's like you know you're out so yeah I went through four years of college like solely focused on going pro not you know my spring of my senior year no interviews whatsoever (laughs) you know nothing no networking um and you know sure enough i got my chance and i signed with the calgary flames organization and uh you know actually had a, a decent shot uh with that club and Played a bunch of games between three different teams. So they have like Calgary, then that's St. John Flames. St. John New Brunswick in case okay, you're yeah. not big Flames <laughs> Uh And then the East Coast Hockey League, which a uh, little trivia is the Johnstown Chiefs, which is the actual team uh, called the Charlestown Chiefs in Slapshot, the Paul Newman movie. Yeah, yeah. Um. So like I can watch that movie, which... <laughs> I think it's like early 70s yeah and like went to those places the town's just kind of like stuck in an era yeah um but anyhow it's one of my my best stories that i spent a year playing for the chiefs yeah i mean that's <laughs> it's a very
1: cool trajectory <laughs> was uh were the fans accepting of a of an american in calgary uh or was that not a thing
2: you know it wasn't really a thing yeah uh, they didn't care much but, uh, <laughs> they just wanted wanted you to be good I random story but I remember uh, some of those towns are it's so cold in the winter where um, you know there's like a series of pedways that connect all the major you know the mall to the hotel to the whatever and uh, I remember playing uh, a bad game and like walking from the arena to my hotel, which might've been like a 15 minute walk. And I was stuck behind three old ladies that were tearing me apart. The <laughs> whole time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't
0: think. Did I you cared. make it known that uh, it was you when you're, did you pass them and say like. No,
2: I just kept my head down.
0: <laughs> just <laughs> silently wept behind them. Yeah. 15 minute walk. Uh, so how did playing in the pros compare to like what you had imagined?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, uh, like I said earlier, I think, uh, college was kind of the high point for me. Yeah. You know, you play for the, the same team and the same school with the same guys for a number of years. There's never any question as to like, who's going to be on your team yeah. in a couple weeks. Right. Um, but although I glossed over it, I changed teams twenty times my rookie year when I when I signed pro. Oh, so my gosh. how does that work? All preseason? Yeah, it works like you know, <laughs> uh, you show up to the locker room and your shit's packed, and they're like, "Oh, oh man, you know, good luck." And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's not it's not a great way to live. Yeah, it's a grind. And yeah, and it's you know something I loved so much all of a sudden became like source of resentment yeah and, you know putting your wet gear on is just you know
1: yeah. it's is there a singular moment you could trace back to where you're like
2: all right i've had enough um you know i don't recall a singular incident but essentially what happened was i played two years uh mostly in the minors um in the ahl east coast league and then my third season i uh I got a tryout with the Columbus Blue Jackets, which it was their first year in existence. So they were an expansion team. If there was any, ever any opportunity, you know, this would be it, um, you know, and it, it didn't work out. And I kind of ended up at the same level I had been playing and something uh, people may not realize, but if you play four years of college hockey, and then turn pro, you're kind of old already.
0: Gotcha. Because right? yeah. you
2: have, I mean, I don't know, Connor Bedard. Are you guys familiar? You know, the Blackhawks just won the lottery to have the number one overall pick. And this year there's a player available who's, you know, said to be a generational talent. Like you know, He's going to save Redsky. us. He was going to but if you you know if you look at him i think he's 17 he's got like you know baby face a couple zits and um, <laughs> so you know i'm saying if you go through 4 years and
0: yeah our people so our most professional hockey players now skipping college and going straight from you know high school or whatever
2: um i would
0: or not money, i would yeah. guess
2: the most common path is through juniors okay. uh, canadian juniors so like the kids start getting paid they get drafted at like 15 or 16 and you know start getting paid and work their way up that way as far as college players i mean i don't stay up on this so it's going to be really shooting from the hip but i would say most college players who end up playing in the nhl uh don't stay four years okay right a year or two and then they
0: yeah Hmm. all right so how did you uh make the transition into the hospitality world um,
2: so picking up, uh, f- from when I kind of packed up my truck and left my hockey team, I yeah. uh, went to Notre Dame, um, football game, you know, a bunch of, met a bunch of friends and most of my, uh, friends who had graduated were in Chicago. It's kind of the next logical step for most mm-hmm. Notre Dame mm-hmm. folks, at least for a couple of years before they had. Um, you know, to wherever else. So literally I was at a tailgate and met a guy wearing plaid pants and a <laughs> green sweater vest and str- you know struck up a random conversation and uh, which led to a job offer in commercial real estate. Hmm. So um, yeah, I crashed on uh, I had a couple friends who had moved out from the East Coast. Uh, crashed on a futon at their place. Started working at this, uh, you know, commercial real estate job, which was essentially like managing a database of commercial properties. Not really my jam, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Is it anyone's? Even jam? then, it was it, it was kind of hard, and uh, you know, I was making considerably less money than I had been. You know playing hockey mm-hmm. uh i had no expenses at that time so you know i justified a nice car and you know here i am like you know uh can hardly afford to eat yeah <laughs> um mm-hmm. so you know cut loose the car and uh, got a second job um so I, be- I started moonlighting as a security guard at the whiskey blue uh, which was cocktail bar uh at the w hotel at wells and adams hmm. Um, what had happened was what one, year is this sorry? I, it's early 2000s, okay, right? So 2001 maybe. yeah um, My roommate a buddy of mine from high school Went to college with a guy who is the opening manager at this whiskey blue so, you know, my buddy's like I, I just got a sweet gig I'm gonna like stand around and you know talk to girls and be the doorman or whatever and so I I was all over that um and and the job turned out to be exactly that it was kind of like a hot spot yeah um it was kind of like an early cocktail bar vibe and uh yeah I wore a collared shirt and had an earpiece like you know with the rest of the security guys, <laughs> we took turns work, you know, turns work in the door, and yeah. then just like hanging out in the corner inside. Any fights? Um, not there, yeah. Uh, you know, certainly later in my career, I, I've had, uh, <laughs> but as a, of those experiences.
0: as a goalie, did you get in fights? Uh, not. do goalies ever get involved
2: they do yeah there have been
0: goalie on
1: goalie fights
2: and and i will tell you just really quickly because i don't want to go backwards but minor league hockey everyone fights it's different than the nhl at least when i was playing it was it's like minor league baseball they do crazy marketing stuff and out like minor league hockey in johnstown pennsylvania people you know, spend their hard-earned money on a ticket and they want to see blood, you know, seriously. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so you had some good
0: experience fighting yeah. that.
2: Uh, and I, you know, some good fights on the, uh, on the <laughs> customer side, but uh, yeah, no, that was a pretty tame uh, experience. I really, uh, I learned how to make a Cosmo in okay. a pinch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was about, that was about it. Um for a for a period of time and then uh, we caught word that they were opening a second place which was the whiskey sky at the W Hotel Lakeshore Um, and since I had been on the opening team if you will uh, I was offered a a gig over there so this was great for me because my real estate job my nine-to-five was just a couple blocks away from W Lakeshore so I got in this routine of, you know, I'd bring a backpack to work with my change of clothes and, you know, I'd go from work to the bar and then, you know, maybe out after uh, and then somehow, you know, get to work yeah, the next day. Yeah, sleep for a few
0: hours and Yeah. You know, um, so how old
1: are
2: you at this point? Mid-20s? Yes. And uh, at one point it kind of came to a head. I had been... Um, I had been napping in the handicapped bathroom during the day. (laughs) Uh, You know, I had made friends with the the office director. And so I'd go in there and spread out newspaper and just take like a power nap. And uh, one day I didn't realize, but I had newsprint on my face. And so (laughs) I was walking around the office and it became a joke. And the fact that word spread about it. Kind of got me in trouble, you know, <laughs> um, like it was such a funny joke. People couldn't stop talking about it. And that exposed me for what <laughs> I was doing. So, yeah, I got I got uh, asked to leave that that job. And, you know, at that time was a full time security guard for for a couple weeks. Uh, then ironically, guy walked in to Whiskey Sky, guy who I had met uh, through my real estate job turned out to be in the hospitality industry and you know he was shocked to see me there because I had just met with him a few weeks prior and basically he offered me a job on the spot uh, running a couple bars and you know I was in no way qualified I had, <laughs> not, I had never actually managed a bar you know I had um, been an M.O.D. of sorts or yeah. a key carrier whatever yeah. you call it you know but uh Anyhow, and I I don't know how in tune you guys were to the, the industry back in these days. It was a different world, certainly. But his partner turned out to be Billy Deck. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> Billy Deck, this was the time he uh, and his um, cronies uh, opened Les Passage. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So his... His partners at whatever he was doing prior I can tell you it was on weed street it was like circus and the bedroom and hogs and honeys and so uh, yeah I went from being a doorman to a director of operations for an entertainment crew Wow Um, how was that learning curve for you um, you know it it was tough obviously but something i say all the time and i certainly mean it in a self-deprecating way and not um a condescending way but bars are not rocket science and especially back then when it was like jaeger bombs and (laughs) you know it just wasn't it almost you know it's something i could wrap my head around and um you know i didn't necessarily know the terminology or the correct way to do things but you know
0: yeah, you were honest and capable. Yeah, I
2: figured it out and I think that's why I was hired really. Yeah. There, were, there were no expectations of greatness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, along those lines I did it for about a year and I was like, This is this is cool, I can do this. Um, I always really liked the creative aspects. Um, you know, I think like a lot of people, you know, I'm not yeah. unique in that, but the idea of you know, coming up with a, with a name and a concept and a vibe and a story behind what you're doing. Yeah, I, I found a property. Um, I had been looking for a while, even though I had no business doing so, like, whatsoever. And um, I guess my story was uh, I somehow got Spike's Rat Bar under contract which was 12 West Elm.
0: Yeah, what an amazing name. Spike's Rat Bar.
2: Yeah, really. And, I mean, you really can't appreciate it unless you meet Spike. (laughs) Spike's a former um, Navy SEAL. Okay. Bald head like Mr. Clean, like never (laughs) the slightest, you know, remnant of a hair. Um, And, yeah, he became a broker by selling that but uh it was kind of an interesting story i mean i i had had this director of operations job for almost a year and i was like sick of um you know i had to close out about 40 drawers and it was all cash Mm. and these were 5 a.m's right Mm, yeah like these were nightclubs for the most part so you know i'd be counting cash with those old counters you know the machines and you know, leave and 7 a.m. and go to Hollywood Grill was the spot at that time. Yeah, yep. Um, you know, and then I'd go to sleep and I'd get a call an hour in from the owner being like, the drawer, drawer number 37 is off by $7. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I, did, I thought I was, I had to do it. I liked it, but I had to do it on my own. Like, it yeah. was just such a you know kicking the nuts kind of <laughs> yeah. um, one ap- one hour after falling asleep yeah so heard about this place spikes rap bar tavern license down in the Gold Coast I had never spent any time down there so I didn't know the neighborhood but it was uh it was for sale for 125 grand and they owed like 117 grand in sales tax something like that that. Um, and had like a year left on their their lease so as you guys can put together it's not worth much right because there's only a year left on a lease and this this landlord maury morris liebling long time slumlord i mean landlord at (laughs) 12 west elm you know he wasn't willing to give anyone a lease because he knew they would then be able to sell it And he didn't want someone else making money off of what he felt was his space. And um, he also didn't want to be locked into a tenant that he didn't know or wasn't his choosing. So he was kind of just choking them out in in a way. So, you know, I put it under contract at a time where it didn't even really mean anything uh, because there was no lease. And I somehow put it under, put it, wrote an offer on Friday along with a check for like five grand and had to run around all weekend to borrow the five grand to make the check good on Monday. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you guys have heard a bunch of these stories doing this. that. No, this like, is great. That's what it was. Literally. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, my buddy's older brother was, he was like a trader and he was going to buy a Porsche and he was like, well, you know, I'll give you five grand and maybe, you know, Maybe we can talk about more. So the the big move, though, was uh, one day I, I woke up early and shaved, found a sport coat, you know, and went in and presented to Mr. Liebling, um, you know, how much I wanted to improve the space and what I was willing to do. And, um, you know, although I've, you know, kind of taken shots at him uh Uh, over the years like he he did give me an opportunity he gave me like a 15 a 10 and maybe a five-year option yeah which all of a sudden kind of makes it an asset because you have the rights to the space and the use of that license for that period of time so I did that you know was able to again go back to my buddy's older brother I think he lent me like 50 grand and he put in 50 grand Um, but it wasn't an investment, you know, he, he lent it to me. He was very clear. Uh, and you know, and we figured out a way to do it. Um, and what was the name of the space once you reopened it? So it was called Elm street liquors. Yeah. Um, if I recall back then, it was largely inspired by empire records. Okay. Oh yeah. You know, we got the, we got the lease and we needed some more money even on top of what i had so my story gets interesting and i don't know if i should reference the dude and by name probably not but there was like a, a well-known at the time kind of up-and-coming young superstar in the in the hospitality world and uh i needed some money and he was just looking to put his name kind of on anything he could so he bought like i don't know seven percent of the, this place but like at a a big markup but to him there was value in just kind of like expanding his growing portfolio um but ironically for like years it was his place because i was kind of nobody you know
0: right the press made it
2: seem like his place even though he
0: had a tiny percentage of it
2: right which you know again press didn't, didn't uh, care much but yeah that so that property for me was the one where like I did all the work and I bought all the furniture at Ikea and you know was involved in every aspect of of building it and then you know every minute it was open for the first couple of years and yeah you're there all the you time know, so you know I definitely look back at it finally actually over the weekend I was contemplating trying to have like a it's not twenty five years yet, but like uh, a reunion you know, yeah because be cool. I still kind of keep in touch with some of the opening crew you yeah know.
0: do any of the opening crew work
2: in Heisler hospitality today uh unfortunately not um, you know they're probably too good for it, I guess uh, <laughs> No. Uh, are every, there any notable alumni um Certainly notable, but probably not in this context, gotcha. you know, like um, they're successful, but not in hospitality. Yeah. And the, the thing, you know, I have to make clear and own up to before I'm just literally exposed as a fraud. Like <laughs> at the time I got into hospitality, uh, not only was I really a doorman, um, security floor manager, um, but there wasn't the culture. That there is now. Yeah. You know, like I was joking, but no, I mean there was a lot of O bombs, Jaeger bombs. Yeah. You know, even at Elm Street I was doing bottle service and DJs. Um, you know, it it was it was a different time. Yeah, for sure.
1: This episode is brought to you by Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, a tasty versatile spirit. Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, complete your bar.
0: how does Heisler hospitality
2: come to be how do you meet Kevin so what's the first project so I was running Elm Street liquors it you know it was well received it was a cool little spot everyone referenced it as being very New York whatever that meant (laughs) actually I know what it meant Uh, we tore out the rotted wood floor and so it was a concrete subfloor and we couldn't uh, afford to do a floor so it was exposed and it was uh. oh, so cool it's like yeah <laughs> <We> <laughs> but um there, yeah. anyhow uh, that was well received <laughs> and, and going well and I had kind of heard about uh you know this neighborhood worker Park which you know all my college friends were all like Lincoln Park Wrigleyville like mm-hmm. you know um but my you know bar friends were kind of going west and so um, I found a condo uh, next door to Big Star it was Pontiac at the time yeah. but the garden unit right next to the the patio and I forget which was first but it was they were right about the same time um, I put what is now the revel room under contract so the guys that own Club Lucky owned it and they were going to do a lounge and they had gotten a tavern license and, uh, and then they decided better of it and, uh, (laughs) put it up for sale. So I kind of like shifted gears and went all in on Wicker Park. Like I moved there and opened a place. Um, you know, and although I carried most of the the way um, on Elm Street, I did have other partners to kind of, you know, help, whether it be financially or, um, you know, just just setting things up. Like, you know, I, I would be lying if I said I had no support, you know, yeah, um, really for my entire career. Uh, but uh, Empire Liquors, which was the well, predecessor Rebel for Rebel yeah. Room, yeah. was actually there for 14 years. Um But uh, I was opening that, and, you know, I had no resources, no designers, contractors, like, whatever. So um, it's funny because I listened to Terry Alexander's episode on the way down here, and I heard his perspective on this era that I lived through, (laughs) and, you know, there's a little bit of, like, overlapping here and there uh but basically what happened is i was living next door to the pontiac at the time that he was building del toro before violet hour and they were some guy was cladding it in barnwood right um went on to become one of the most like you know um overused materials for like a decade but at the time it was like new and cool and Mm -hmm. the idea of using some like you know worn uh distress materials so i went over and tapped this guy on the shoulder and i was like hey i live here i'm buying a you know i'm opening a bar around the corner i don't know anyone like can i talk to your boss please and it was kevin heisner my now partner (laughs) and he's like the most unassuming guy you would ever meet so i asked him for his boss and he's like "Um." Well, it's kind of me, you know, because, you know, it was, um, and he was, you know, he had known Terry, you know, long time, old school. Yeah. He designed some stuff for uh, one-off too, didn't he? Yeah. So he, he built, um, Big Star, he built Violet Hour, he built Publican, um, they worked with uh, an architect slash designer, um. But you know, uh, as Kevin likes to remind me, there's a lot that needs to be figured out in the field. Like you can, you know, whip up a great rendering, but the guy <laughs> that's got to like actually yeah make it. So, um, but yeah, he had a he had a long relationship with those guys, and I met him while he was doing Del Toro. And after he, you know, explained to me that it was actually his company. Um, I asked him like if we could meet for coffee. He'd be interested in hearing about this job I have. Again, I was just like grasping for straws, and he was working on this cool looking place. Uh, so he agreed to meet me for coffee at Letitia's uh, in the neighborhood. And so I, I showed up with this like manel folder full of tears. You know, it's back in the day, everything's yeah, hard hard copies. Um, that I, you know, put together over some period of time, and really I thought represented like the vibe I wanted for Empire. Um, and you know, Kevin just sat there, quiet as always, kind of you know listening, and uh, we got along well. I don't remember anything like particularly, you know, uh, noteworthy about that conversation until the end when he was like you know i live a couple blocks away from here on potomac and i've been like redoing the place and i thought maybe you want to come see what i'm doing yeah for sure Um, (laughs) and you know he walks me in uh and it was super cool place Uh, i i lived there at one point for a while um but what was crazy is he walked me into a room And it was exactly what I had showed him on those tears. (laughs) It was this, like, black room with panel molding and, you know, it it was early on with the pygmy taxidermy things and Mm -hmm. uh, herringbone floor. Like, it was crazy the similarities between what, you know. So it was one of those things where we kind of, like, got along famously from that time forward uh this is the spot with um the coffee table skylight
1: in the basement right yes exactly yeah it like the trap door yeah yeah i've walked through that place it's very cool
2: so the idea is the light it's a three-story uh townhouse but you know big skylights on top and then the second floor hallways are like fire escapes so the light comes through the skylight goes through the fire escapes and then there's a coffee table on in the living room which is like plexiglass or lucite and in the basement there's a shutter system where you can open the shutters on the coffee table so essentially you get the light from the skylight on the third floor coming down to the basement wow. it's so cool <laughs> yeah um but yeah uh I, I was excited about working with Kevin. Um, unfortunately, he was about to go to Belgium to meet up with his girlfriend who was working at Fashion Week or something cool, you know. And uh, he asked me for, like, a deposit, like a six-figure deposit. Um, Whoa. Like, right before <laughs> Six he left. six-figure <laughs> deposit. And, like, we always <laughs> reference the fact that I was pretty, like, trusting <laughs> yeah. early on, and it, it really could have gone either way. Um, But then he came back, and uh, what was really cool at the time was uh, his girlfriend was living in Europe for a while, so Kevin deemed it uh, the summer of Kevin. (laughs) And so, you know, I would say maybe it was his peak of, uh, you know, going out and having a good time, and, you know, I I was there for it. So, you know, I mean, these days we're old men, but, you know, (laughs) I, I mean, I... I mean, shoot, he was already like pushing 40, but I remember like, you know, beer bongs and keg stands and, you know, <laughs> summer of like Kevin. just weird, you know, I'm trying to think of what I could say. Just open a here, Summer of but... Kevin bar that celebrates this time. Yeah,
0: wow. uh, Brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, it's the next Heisler concept. But yeah,
2: so uh, Kevin wasn't a partner in uh, Empire, but, you know, we thought it came out great and uh, when it was when it was just open, it was on the cover of hospitality design. So we were, you know, really proud of that riding high. Um, and basically Kevin was like, you know, if you do this again, let me know, like, I'd like to be a partner maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, really the result of that was Bardeville. Okay, cool. Yeah. Wow. And that was the beginning. So that was the first official partnership. So, yeah, Bardaville was our first uh, partnership. Um, At around the same time, we also did Nightwood with Jason Hamill. Yeah, so a favorite restaurant of many. Comes Um, up a lot on the pod. It does come
0: up a lot on the podcast. How did that come to be? Um, Were you happy with... I mean, obviously, initially, it was very cool. And then, like,
2: what's the story of how... Yeah, I mean, I can... Honestly, say I would join the list of folks who, you know, consider that place to be one of their favorite restaurants, Mm -hmm. you know, all time in Chicago for me. So good. I uh, actually proposed to my wife there and uh, yeah, special place. But um, so, yeah, I guess this was around the same time as Bardaville. And at the time we were looking for buildings, real estate you know that we could buy with an sba loan and you know kind of you know roll it all into one loan so we wouldn't necessarily have to come up with all the cash and you know still still the way to go if you can but um what that caused us to is look at more like uh cuspy neighborhoods you know stuff that was a little you know a few years out um Mm -hmm. because that's what we could afford you know so You know deville was a no-brainer because you know i was already living in wicker park at the time and was aware of it and spike represented me on the deal there was no way i was gonna (laughs) lose it yeah um but yeah i remember just like aimlessly driving around pilsen and looking for something and um yeah there was a weird building kind of really cheap and as we later found out, it's because the developer was a crook. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we were able to buy some parking spots deeded that we could do a little pat- patio with. And, you know, we just figured, you know, 21st and Halstead, like, it's Pilsen. Pilsen's right around the corner, you know. And uh as it turns out, you know, years later, obviously, 18th Street is the artery. And, mm-hmm. you know, I still don't know that pilsen's ever popped the way a lot of people have speculated for a long time that it will yeah so you know we we opened up there uh i thought it was cool because skylark was next to us and you know Mm -hmm. maybe it was like some critical mass there how did jason hamill get involved uh so, you've got to go back and I guess acknowledge that Kevin had been kicking around Wicker Park and Logan Square for, you know, since the 80s, you know, since he was sneaking into the rainbow before he was 21. Yeah. So, you know, he had done, you know, he had painted Lula for Jason Hamill and built some planners, and his girlfriend worked at Lula. So, you know, it was a pre existing relationship of Kevin's. Um, and yeah, we, I started looking for a spot. You know, the idea certainly was like, I knew nothing about food, but Jason had that. Uh, so seems- did it matter for the SBA that you had food in this concept? I don't recall, uh, but I don't think so. Hmm, okay. um, you know, I, uh, but yeah, we, we took a kind of a risk on a, you know, a, a top, what turned out to be a tough location. Um, I think, you know, I reference it all the time, but I just think you know, I'll say they did amazing stuff, right? Um because, you know, I couldn't take any credit for what happened yeah. uh on the culinary side, right? Yeah. But it was it was a special place, you know, um brunch there was so good. Just the best. And, I went uh, so many times. Still remember those donuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean so much you know yeah it was you know my first date with my wife it was uh, again I proposed there just just a lot of memories a lot of really great food you know um, this is one of our first dates as well yeah my wife and I yeah yeah not us yeah, not <laughs> him and I. Um, but yeah great spot and um, you know it was bittersweet at yeah. the end but we just couldn't make sense of the model down there it just you know, we couldn't, we couldn't get folks there, especially during the week. You yeah, know? exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, the only reason we can, I mean, we can
0: talk about it so freely now, obviously you're very successful. Heisler's very successful. It's just, you know, we've had a failed concept. It's kind of like naturally a part of, of the restaurateur's life.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it hurts like nothing else, yep. you know, and it, it's really kind of, a you know knocks the wind out of you but yeah i mean i uh i think it's just kind of part of the the gig if you do it long enough you know yeah. um so
0: what, I, yeah sorry oh you, no, you
2: go ahead <laughs> <laughs> no i was just curious like
0: <clears throat> you know people ask ask me uh, about sink swim sometimes and uh i guess i'll i'll pose the same question to you like what are the things that you took away from that experience that affected future
2: concepts um you know I think I've learned um, an incredible amount of lessons over my career I think that one was more so uh, about location you know I, I don't know that we were set up to succeed even the day we opened yeah um i mean certainly you know it was kind of a beautiful room in a kind of weird quirky way it was kind of cut up a little bit cool basement that felt like a wine cellar uh, event space you know i i believe if it was in uh wicker park or logan square you know it it would have been a a totally different story Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah my big lessons kind of came in the restaurant world came a little (laughs) little later on
1: (laughs) this episode of joiners is brought to you by stock manufacturing makers of fine hospitality workwear you obsess over the details in your space so why stop at your staff's uniforms stock has something for every aesthetic from fine dining to a corner cafe they've got you covered Choose from in stock, ready to wear options, or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. What's the next concept that opens?
2: At this time, you know, Nightwood's open and you know, I'm more of a a customer than anything. You know, I (laughs) like to be around Kevin and I liked to be around Best Burger in Chicago at the time yeah uh, so that was great but um in terms of what I was focused on uh, DeVille was well received kind of out of the gate I spent yeah. a lot of time there mm-hmm. you know both me too uh,
0: yeah all you know of us. professionally
2: and and personally enjoyed <laughs> enjoyed uh, that place immensely um, you know Brad lived upstairs for most of the ten years and uh, one of my best friends now living in LA lived in the other unit so it was kind of like this awesome hang yeah it was just you know if you're either in the bar upstairs on someone's couch and it all kind of like bled together and yeah you know, i i, I want to they had a nickname for it brad if i had a nickname it was like the den of happiness or something <laughs> that wasn't yeah. it but it was like something it like was a that. it was cool time you know yeah um and uh Empire Liquors was doing its thing, you know, DJs and (laughs) O-bombs. And then uh, I guess the next thing I got wrapped up in was probably Angels and Kings, which I don't know how familiar you guys uh, are with Angels and Kings. Did Terry talk about it? Somebody mentioned this. Mm, I just listened to Terry, and I don't think he did. So Angels and Kings was a concept that originated in the east village of new york um the ground floor of the building where crush music management offices were at the time fallout boy was kind of blowing up and was (laughs) their pride and joy so they took over the first floor and opened a bar called angels and kings yeah um you know they furnished it with uh stuff from a prop store like down the block (laughs) you know not a lot of thought into it they had this big gong behind the bar that you know turned out to be a pillar of the concept but totally <laughs> unintended um but yeah again and i'll preface this different time like, yeah not you know no craft cocktails um here uh but you know because the timing was such that fallout boy was becoming like super huge jay-z showed up to the opening of angels and kings Hmm. right like big deal you know cool people big famous people and it was just kind of like the right time you know um so you know i had a a friend of a friend who wanted to do an angels and kings in chicago and his buddies with pete you guys know fallout boys it's all chicago guys you okay know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. um their families are still here uh so anyhow yeah we got i got mixed up in that as the operator um found a space in river north uh and on clark street and it was like this kind of lot of barn wood Uh, and a gong um but yeah it was kind of like supposed to be a down and dirty rock and roll type place um and i think it's one of those places where um people liked it more than it worked which is i think a common story yeah you know um but you know it it ended up well in the sense that in spite of the fact that neither Chicago or New York was crushing um, we still open one in LA and in <laughs> Barcelona <laughs> wow. and it was a thing and hard rock acquired it Wow and I have nothing to do with it um, <laughs> you know I I really it it no longer exists it's no longer a thing Um, but yeah it was it was a weird few years and um, a lot of people liked it we were doing something that no one else really kind of was so just to give you an idea this was the era of we had like plain white tees uh, you know yeah. playing there a lot and like was there uh, a
1: stage at every yeah there spot? was a stage.
2: Okay. it was a bar but it could like flip to yeah. a stage yeah. but um the girl that hey, there Delilah delilah's about like was a server oh you know? really and like <laughs> we it, it was a it was a really cool place like i said um but uh at some point it moved to the hard rock hotel yeah and uh i kind of exited it <laughs> yeah, at that point <laughs> that's pretty sweet yeah
0: um and then I guess like you know we uh we're taking a lot of your time but at some point you know after this sportsman's comes to be mm-hmm. um yeah how do you I guess how do you break down like the phases of Heisler
2: um I mean there's a lot yeah, of concepts and I'll, I'll try to kind of speed it up but uh no, yeah it's you know I yeah you reference sportsman's you know we had a big. Uh, you know you work on these things for like years and you can never really predict exactly when they're going to open but we opened sportsman's club uh lone wolf and the revel room the same month or at least within the same six weeks oh damn 2013 yeah uh november of and um you know it was kind of a new era that is wild new new stuff and a new um kind of chapter you know sportsman's you know just fantastic super honored to be a part of it and you know much like Bardeville before it um and then uh yeah we did that and got some momentum and uh Made the foolish mistake of thinking I would double down on some restaurants, <laughs> now that we got the bar thing figured out, um, and that would have been bad, Hunter. Okay. Uh, mm. But you know, also at that time, you know, it's funny. Uh, we opened the three bars in two thousand thirteen, and then I think it was probably two thousand sixteen where we opened uh, pub. We opened Pub Royale, Queen Mary. And a stereo wow. all, all uh, on threes yeah similar times hmm. um, you know and from there on kind of varying levels of success you know two steps forward one step back yeah. vice versa um, but really for me the biggest turning point and like th- what er- got me at this uh, point in my career this phase if you will was COVID. You know it uh it just forced me to really be honest about what's working and what's not and Mm -hmm. you know I think I also went through this thing where I was like some of this shit is just so self-indulgent you know how do I you know how do I go back to ordering edible flowers and this and that you know after kind of going through that yeah um You know, and as much as I think, you know, people like to say they don't care, uh, I think it can be tough to make certain decisions, to pull the plug, what will, you know, first and foremost, how does it impact other people, my employees, this, I mean, you you guys know it, but, um, but also it's like this, you know, announcement that you failed and uh, it can be tough, again, for a number of reasons, but, you know... During the pandemic era, whatever you would refer to it as, um, you know, it didn't matter. It's like I'm worried about, you know, my family right. and, and and these important things, you know, and I'm going to basically it empowered me to be like, I'm going to close what I have to close. I'm going to do what I have to do. Certainly going to look out for everyone I can while I'm doing it. But. You know this isn't about me being embarrassed because i failed with a project this is yeah you know it's beyond it and so what happened uh the other end of the pandemic is i'm a proud bar guy yeah you know um i've kind of accepted i have no personal uh culinary background um it's not something i could like dive in at a moment's notice and help with and it's been it's been challenging so you know when I closed Bad Hunter and then ultimately we sold the pub Royale space um, it put an end to kind of the food era yeah. um, now our biggest uh, our biggest food concept is Pizza Lobo yeah which mm-hmm. I consider kind of like a slice shop tavern um, but yeah so for me the evolution was Kind of you know started out all right with the bars kind of got over my skis and really (laughs) you know into this scene that we lived through where (laughs) i mean listen i i've gone to new york multiple times with multiple chefs and i've sat at the food and wine desks you know back in the day k crater and this and that and you know pitched our chefs for awards and you know, and I just look back at it and I was like, Well, you know, what was I thinking? Like, really? <laughs> yeah. Um and
1: I don't know, I loved your food concepts. Parbury, yeah. I was bummed when that closed. No, I no, I I get it from an
2: standpoint. I'm very standpoint, proud of it. What I'm saying yeah, is we put so much yeah. effort and energy yeah. into like uh, you know, getting our chefs like we spent too much money on PR for our chefs. Yeah. Mm. We could have spent money.
0: In, in other ways. areas yeah. and that's
2: no disrespect no, yeah. to anyone i just you know yeah, I, it's a different
0: I, game yeah and I, yeah. yeah sometimes i feel similarly to you <laughs> that yeah we kind of made hay in the in the bar world and pivoting into sink swim uh more of a true restaurant it's just difficult it's a different beast Yep. you need certain reviews to come in you need to sit the house all the time i mean similar to what you're talking about Nightwood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a location thing. It's, it's there's so many different yeah, more factors. variables of food. Yeah. And the costs are just much greater and, uh, yeah. yeah and the just... criticism people love to hate
1: on food. <laughs> yeah, you don't really, yeah. it's hard, yeah.
0: hard
2: to hate on a cocktail or a, <laughs> a beer. I actually, I don't know if you guys are done with no, no. another two minutes. Yeah. We I got, a, yeah. we
0: got a whole, we got, we got to get to a gratuity round with you too. Yeah. So yeah. Take your uh, time.
2: So yeah, just to kind of cap it off though, I just wanted to share, um, kind of uh, my reconciliation with with food service Um, you know during the pandemic I was foolish enough to open Pizza Lobo Um, you know I thought it was not you know huge outdoor space um, delivery uh, and it was something that you know I wanted to keep my legs moving I wanted to move forward and I thought this was viable even you know during that time although you know we didn't know how long that time was gonna be Mm -hmm. but the interesting thing is I had made the decision to close bad hunter you know and had all these employees that I you know wanted to find work for and so I was opening what was supposed to be lone wolf with slices of pizza so tavern slice shop and instead uh i made the decision which i don't regret at all to bring the bad hunter staff over right so we opened our pizza tavern with uh you know two sous chefs uh a sommelier pastry chef an assistant pastry chef yeah a lot of people and it was a time when no bar stools. you couldn't be at the bar which was supposed to be our concept yeah and you had to operate as a reservation only restaurant right so even though we got open it was nothing like what i intended <laughs> it to be you know i got a like a text from a good friend who was there early on and he's like this is a fantastic pizza restaurant good for the whole family and I'm like, geez, you know, this, <laughs> you know, I, I know how we got here, but yeah, um, someday there's gonna be a reckoning, you know. And, <laughs> uh, and then you know, I remember a specific day where we were running a uh, Crudo special, yeah, and I was just like, man, we it, it just isn't what it was supposed to be, <laughs> yeah. It's too so, end, yeah. you know, as time went by and as places kind of started hiring and reopening um, you know the folks that didn't necessarily want to be making pizza that I had brought over kind of started to move on to, right. to other things. Worked and self out. Yeah and so but two years in we found ourselves you know having gone from nine chefs <laughs> to, to Joey yeah. you know who's <laughs> the young guy who loves pizza and doesn't have the big resume. And we're like, all right, we got, we got to overhaul this. So we actually, you know, we went through the process of, you know, uh, tasting out doughs and, you know, everything that goes, <clears throat> comes together for the pizza. And we, you know, we re- recalibrated all our, it's all new recipes. It kind of really nails what I remember growing up on the East Coast. Oh, cool. as, you know slices and it's been super well received and uh, you know I'm just proud of it for a couple reasons. I mean I'm proud of the guys that stepped up and did it but also I've never had the experience before where I've like successfully turn the cruise ship
0: yeah pivoted you guys
2: know what I'm saying right you know you come out of the gate something doesn't work and you're like damn I I want to be something else and it's it's like impossible so hard to get there once you're like moving you know so but we did it you know I mean we redid all the branding and logos all the recipes and then we opened our second one in Andersonville Andersonville, as like 2.0 and we were able to get Logan, like, up to speed that same week. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I mean, we're however long, you know, in now. But uh, we're definitely a different place. And, you know, now, as an old man, it's like, <laughs> yeah. finally feel like I have a little control over <laughs> food.
1: Well, that's great. So um, is the future of Heisler building the Asterio brand and expanding Lobo?
2: Oh, yeah, we didn't didn't even get to Asterio. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we're uh, all in agreement that a stereo and Lobo are concepts that have legs. Um, I really enjoy, you know, what I do, but I think there comes a time where, you know, reinventing the wheel over and over again is just you know, not yeah. a formula for success. I mean, you start thinking, OK, what haven't I done yet? OK, what, you know what can I change from this? And it's like you end up with something that doesn't really reflect your own sensibilities mm-hmm. and it's just like uh, the result of an aspiration to be different or new yeah. or unique. Yeah. So yeah, we we love Lobo, uh, which we still consider like a Chicago tavern with pizza. So mm-hmm. you could say it's Lone Wolf, it's Sportsman's, it's yeah. whatever. And yeah, and other than that, just kind of be an opportunistic, have a cool little project, um, that I'm very excited about just because of the people I'm working with. Um, is it too early to tease that the way it worked out was we were going to open Danny's, right? So Danny's went back on the market. Terry had been trying to buy it for decades. Finally, it went on the market. Uh, one of the guys on the team there, like long time, uh, called one of my partners, like, financial partners and was like hey it's for sale um so my partner called me and was like you know can you try to figure this out so you know i put ultimately put in an offer to buy the building and then you know reached out to terry because the million dollar question is like is liquor license still alive or you have to re you know get a new one and um, so as it turned out, Terry had the license and he had 12 months that he could revive it by paying for it. And, um, I believe on good information that maybe the sign's living somewhere in his garage. So, <laughs> uh, anyhow, it was like, there's no way to do this without Terry. So I reached out for Terry. I think, um, we met for a drink. Maybe Kevin was there and, uh, you know, we were like, you want to do Danny's and it was, it was I was, um, it was cool to see that it was such a big thing for Terry. Yeah. Like, he didn't take Mm -hmm. the decision lightly. Like, he went through it, and he closed it, and it's like, does he want to do that? Um, But in the end, he did, and we were super excited, and we were going to do Danny's, and then basically they sold it to someone else. Um, Crazy. So bogus. And, yeah, we were super bummed, but, you know, at this point, I had already kind of met with terry a few times i'd kind of gotten to know him better than i had in the last 20 years yeah and i was like this is kind of a bummer you know i was really looking forward to it i mean i knew it wasn't gonna like um you know be a cash cow per se but like what a cool thing to bring danny's back you know um at the same time abe had reached out i think to jeff donahue and was just kind of like testing the waters on you know, maybe doing a project of his own and what were we up to um you know again because i'm not uh it's not what my background is i i like to work with people who like really are going to take control and really yeah. not only you know have probably equity but just take ownership of the yeah. project and so yeah <clears throat> this was before abe uh received all his acclaim for his for metal know, art. yeah yeah, yeah which is kind of funny I'll tell you in a minute but um yeah so Abe reached out met with him and that was kind of moving along um, you know seemed like a great guy seemed super talented um, we were looking for someone to do that project at Grand with I mean I had owned that building for I don't know six seven eight years and it was always supposed to be a bar um, so we we're finally getting traction on that at the same time Abe reached out Um, And and both that and Danny's were moving along and then one day Danny's just went away and I was sitting here thinking You know neither one of these was gonna be again allow me to like retire early, right? (laughs) So What would it hurt in like offering up Terry to come into? You know this other one just because again, I, I was excited about working with them. So Kind of ironic that Abe had worked for Terry for six years or so at Violet Hour. And, um, you know, it was something where it was either really going to work or, you know, I was going to get kind of some awkward responses. (laughs) Um, And I think Terry and Abe met for a drink one night and kind of, you know, decided it was it was a good idea. And, um, yeah, we're... uh, we're, uh, I really love the name, but I'm not going to spoil spoil it. Um, but it's cool, and the whole idea is like we envision it as somewhat of a, um, you know, an industry haunt. A uh, maybe like you know, I mean, a lot of bars that I'm involved with are fortunate enough to have uh, a large industry following or yeah. presence or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, we just feel like the idea of us uh, coming together with with one off um kind of expands that and hopefully um you know becomes a place that like our community uh yeah like rallies behind yeah and you know supports won't, won't get into it but you know we'd like to kind of do some things geared towards you know being being good members of this community and whatnot so cool and then my uh my offices are on the second floor so it's also kind of a, yeah i think yeah. i
0: knew that that's where your office is yeah right. i've dropped
2: samples off there before i think
0: all right cool you want to hit them with a the gratuity round Gratuity sir?
1: round hey danny yes tim question of the bronca varieties is that all right it's totally cool with me. They are one of our sponsors after all. Terrific. Okay, the sponsor is Branca International. That is the company. Yes. Fernet. So, what's Fernet
0: then? Fernet is the style of Amaro that they originated in 1845. Okay. So, that style, Fernet, is basically a mentholated, punchier, so it's like higher proof, and it's a mintier version of Amaro. Okay, and, I get that. And, it's a minty punch. Yep, and it has since spawned many imitators. Got it. And those also go by the name Fernet, but they're not Fernet. Bronca. Right. Bronca is the name of the distillery, Fortelli Bronca. So it's Fernet Bronca. I got it. That's all. Okay. Can we get back to the show now? Yes, sir. All right. It's kind Matt. of a lightning round of sorts. <laughs> yeah. What is
1: your death row meal?
2: gotta be pizza
1: okay particular
2: style particular place you know i it's tough living in chicago uh saying this but new york style all the way it's just you know it's what you grew up with i yeah. think right nostalgic so, yeah
1: yeah nostalgia always comes into the death row meal i think it does yeah uh all right what's your favorite hidden gem restaurant
2: hmm that's a tough one i feel like hidden gem restaurants get exposed pretty quickly yeah you know what i mean um
1: because of this podcast we we shake them out (laughs) yeah this podcast is way too
0: popular
2: (laughs) you know i i really uh i wish i had some cool answer that blew your minds that you'd never heard of but um fair enough you know i i uh I get down here now that I live in the suburbs so rarely yeah. that it's so hard not to go to, like, the old standbys, you yep. know? Also, things that we don't have up there. We don't have a lot of great sushi options, in, in my opinion. Okay. So, it's like we come down here and we go to Kaizen. Or
0: there you little, go. You know, mm-hmm. so.
1: Kaizen's a good one. Not is there a hidden gem? But is there a hidden gem one. up in Lake Forest? Is Left Bank still around? Left Bank
2: is around. It's and good a good place uh, to get a dog. dogs cheese fries my kids are obsessed with that place yeah it's a you little know, tiny I, how I will old tell are your you kids? guys? 10 and seven all right i've got six and three basically nice good ages yeah uh yeah breslin and Bodie. oh cool my guys um lake colonial opened up in lake forest this year hmm. they have oh. a nice little nice little bar room what is your favorite fast food I mean, I try to stay away from, you know,
1: in a pinch on a road trip.
2: Ask for uh, McDonald's breakfast. Okay, and yeah. what's the order? Sausage McMuffin. Yeah, it's so
0: egg. good. Yeah, mm. Tim surprised me with one of those uh, last week. Was, I sure did. It was amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. You're I mean, welcome. Very if, thoughtful. If you're
2: gonna reference nostalgia, that's it. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing better oh, when I was a kid than best. like Dad went to McDonald's. hundred yep, you know? 100.
1: Of all the Heisler concepts, could you pick a favorite?
2: I mean, no. Right. I mean, I could talk about, you know, this matter. Yeah. What's great about this place or that place? But no, I mean, it's, it's like picking a favorite. Is, but
0: is like well, Danny's this got this a favorite. No, concept, yeah, I know right? this
2: isn't isn't Heisler, but is
0: Elm Street Liquor still the most impactful, probably to you? um Like for Terry, we've been talking about Terry. Obviously, Danny's. I don't know that he would say it, but he clearly, said it. Uh, like clearly, it was, it's yeah. the most impactful to him. Yeah, I mean it's like not one off but it's like his origin story. I mean, he lived there his I, house.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no but that's what I think, what that I Matt think lived is I common thread yeah, with probably a lot of these stories. We did stories that for that Scarfla, you guys are yeah. going to hear. You know it's for like for 3 years I was in that place. But I mean it's you you set about foot in it, since. its yeah, never been back. <laughs> like I uh I've never since Elm Street spent that much time with a team right exactly like I stood at the servers if I could have logged hours that yeah. I just spent standing at the server as well like chatting with our servers or whatever um, and you know uh, you know I've been fortunate where you know I went from one to two and instantly you can't be at both places and I didn't have like a large operations group so you know I kind of started um, not being everywhere yeah. at once and even you know accepting that I couldn't so yeah I mean it, it'll net it would never kind of be the same again you know one one quick story you guys asked me anyone noteworthy that was with my crew um, at that time there was one uh, so my opening DJ who was my resident DJ at my first three properties um literally lent me his stuff like put his equipment at elm street eventually i bought him some for for himself but uh he went on to produce a couple of Lady Gaga's albums. Oh damn! Wow, and his like buddies with Will I Am and like wow. Uh, so yeah, my DJ crushed it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, nice. Here's a question for both of you guys. Do you
1: think so? You both had these eras where you were in the bar pretty much all the time. Yeah. Do you think that is a special sauce type thing? Like, do you think the bars perform better under your watch? Or is that necessary to get a place off the ground and then they kind of find their own footing? I don't footing? think it's
0: like so much about probably, I'll speak for myself, but I don't think it's about our egos, about us specifically being there. But I think that someone needs to be there who cares a very great deal yeah, uh, for a very long time. And at an opening that is the owner-operator. Yeah, and just to establish the standards. Because once you're not there if someone who doesn't have your
2: same level of care is yeah you in gotta charge. cut the groove yeah exactly yeah i couldn't agree more and the, the only thing i would add is uh it's not just the level of commitment or pride and ownership of uh you know whoever's um you know your your lead person your managing partner your your presence but you know it's it's their personality as well you know, what yeah. kind of place do you want to have? You want to, you know, have a party bar and then, you know, a curmudgeon behind the bar. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's all it's all part of it. Like when yeah. you're putting a, a place together the same way you think about, you know, the aesthetic and the furniture and the menu. It's like, who's going to be the kind of composer? Who's going to set the tone, be the vibe, you know? And I think, yeah. you know, often that stuff's kind of like innate and it's just, you know... Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. There's also a lot of luck. I mean,
0: the opening team, uh, it's just crazy. You know, just to look back on who you have and who's in place. All right, next question. If
1: Eisler and Heisner weren't so similar, what would your company be called? <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> did you guys ever <laughs> kick around other names? Yeah, or was did it, it come just like... to you right away? Or like... no, I mean, the true story is that uh, we were sitting in a corner booth at Bardaville during the day, meeting with a banker, trying to get a loan. And he was walking us through the fact that we should form an entity. And literally right there, I, like I zoned out of the conversation. It was like names, names, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just like came up with it then and, and uh, never really looked <laughs> back. So. That's perfect. But yeah, it was like gun to your head. Like, uh, so you know, I mean, it, it it's pretty obvious move, although it's confused many yeah i was many, gonna say how often yeah. is has anyone ever gotten your name right <laughs> anyone i ever mean the, co- <laughs> no. the common uh take on it is that we're brothers and uh, both our names are heisler yeah the or, Heisler. i mean brothers. they just use the names interchangeably yeah, it's yeah. fine though you know yeah, yeah at this point whatever, i think it's I permissible all right what's your favorite cocktail uh i mean i waited till the the end of the podcast to drop this on you but i don't drink much like okay. hardly uh, right. these days i uh i'll tell you like the most enjoyable experiences i have because i don't you know not that there's anything wrong with right, it right. i don't sit around my house and you know um uh but like going to queen mary and sitting on the patio on a nice day And having a martini and some oysters or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all nostalgia, right? I have this great memory of, uh, I spent a summer in New York living with a buddy and Keith McNally had just opened up Polino's, which was a failed uh, pizza place on uh, Houston. And so we used to just sit there and drink Negronis and eat pizza, like, you know, maybe like four nights a week one summer it's pretty sweet and so like you know it's hard for me not to go to lobo and like order a, a negroni yeah even. but I, I think for me uh it's not about the consumption as much as like the experience yeah the vibe you know just like like everything working together you know so totally all right cool um to what do you attribute your success i don't know i've been very fortunate right um first and foremost but uh i think just tenacity maybe or you know like we talked about how deflating some experiences can be right um and i think just like you know getting up again and and you know keep on going um definitely a few times where it would have been easier to kind of like get a job and segue out of this you know especially you know you have a family and stakes are higher and yep. you know it can't be expenses go up yeah it's uh but yeah and and you know honestly as a dad it's something i you know i work to give my kids everything yep. uh you know it makes me so happy but when i think back you know not i mean I, again very fortunate but like it is true and they say you know the failures really kind of teach you the greatest lessons and yeah so yeah i mean i I wish I didn't have to experience it, but (laughs) probably like the adversity over the years, right? Like I've made every mistake there is. So now I know kind of what works.
1: Yeah. Uh, what is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you?
2: I it's, it's, it's ironic because at pizza Lobo, we've implemented a QR code system where you sit at the table, you know, order your drinks, they come to you. Um, we think for that, uh, you know for that environment it's like it's a good uh model however um i find it difficult to tip in certain instances and i'll give you a very specific example uh, i picked up carry out food uh, from a a restaurant I shall not name in in Lake <laughs> Forest, and uh, we had some friends over, so it was like a big order, you know. And yeah. uh, there was a, a couple young ladies at the the register, and literally like people um, runners were bringing the bags of food up to the front, and uh, the woman at the register was you know charging you, and then turning the screen to your face with like twenty percent, um, and I just didn't like the uh like the expectation yeah um and it's like i'm not uh i don't begrudge anyone to make a living but you know i thought the owner should really be ashamed of himself cuz this is like an he should pay them more on an hourly rate and not be yeah. training them yeah, to, to ask for 50 bucks because like they checked me out yeah and i just think it's a slippery slope and um i think you know it may really ultimately impact the industry more you know way more than it is now right if you know if that continues to be like "Uh, what do i do i'm just not going to tip at all now
1: yeah we need to open a forum and come to a decision on takeout tipping yeah because it is it's it's so awkward i mean i think as a diner i mean you guys are
0: operators and owners like i well i think like danny meyer was a little ahead of curve yeah. uh, when he suggested that tipping should not exist anymore and that it should just be built into the prices of things and there's a lot of pushback because at the time we couldn't possibly fathom what that meant but now that we're getting just juiced constantly for all these like mm-hmm. bizarre extra tips and all these wacky situations i think that people's patience is is wearing thin and then people are going to ultimately i mean people probably If the experience of going out is is a bummer and they feel like they're getting taken advantage of, if they're trying to pick up food to support a restaurant and they're having to like pay an extra 50 on top, that makes that person not want to go to that place anymore. And so that place will lose the business and that will happen to enough people that it will severely, like you're saying, impact how the, you know, the bar and restaurant industry operates.
1: Yeah, I think it came out of the pandemic. Where, like, I think that's at the time yeah, where these and it made sense POS we systems were, yeah. where takeout was more common, I guess, or and the only way to know, get food.
0: Yeah, and there weren't, there were no people, there were no patrons going into the businesses to leave proper tips. Right. So it, it transferred into, like people were tipping yeah it was, it was it a gesture right? yeah it was
2: right. it was an unnecessary gesture intended to support yeah exactly. whatever place you're at and their employees right which was I mean, cool right yeah. but it's but like, now it's
0: like you can't have it yeah, both yeah, you ways. Can't go backwards on
2: it or yeah
0: it's very tricky and to your point it's like yeah it's like you get it you want to support the person give them extra money but it is like there's a delicate balance mm-hmm. And it's just super tricky. It's best left to the suits in Washington. <laughs> All right. And then here's
1: our last question. Uh, what is the best thing about Chicago's dining and bar scene?
2: I don't know that I could put my finger on it per se, but I will. I will share that, you know, when I, when I do travel and it's not as much as I'd like, uh, as much as I may experience something I've never had before, or, you know, something just mind blowing, on the whole, I usually come home with a greater appreciation for what Chicago has, just in terms of how it stacks up with, you know, these like international dining destination cities. Um, You know, and then also it's like the people of Chicago have a you know their own way about things uh as do you know most places and uh yeah i just uh i think it's great yeah all right cool well, that's a wrap
1: i'm matt eisler thanks so much yeah, for joining us for coming today. here a lot yeah. of fun And that concludes our conversation with Matt Eisler. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check us out on social media, at joinerspod on Instagram, for exclusive content. Cocktails, reels, throwback photos. This episode was produced by Matt Haddock, music by Captain Cuts, and our real work done by the one and only Joe Guzzo. Guzzo! We'll see you next week.